National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, is brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check out their website at cybersecuritysummit.org for a list of their upcoming webinar series. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, February 8th, and you've joined us for this edition of National Security This Week. We get together every Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're fortunate enough to be joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us learn more about national security challenges and opportunities. Late last year, we did a show on Saudi Arabia. We had a member of the Royal Embassy of Saudi Arabia join us from Washington, D.C. for that show, and we spent an hour learning about Saudi Arabia's political, economic, and security challenges and opportunities. That show received quite a bit of positive feedback. Apparently, people are curious about the perspectives from other nations around the world. Uh, Therefore, I'm planning to do a series of shows this year that will help us learn more about other countries around the world and the important role they play in the international community. Today, we're lucky enough to have as our guest Junzi Pong from the Embassy of Singapore. We're going to study Singapore's political, economic, and security challenges and opportunities for the next hour. Uh, Junzi uh, Pong, JJ, as he's called, is a first secretary in the political section at the Embassy of Singapore in Washington, D.C. Among other duties, he currently heads the embassy's strategic communications and public diplomacy section and co-leads the embassy's engagement with the U.S. Congress. Prior to joining the embassy in Washington, D.C., Pung served at the Singapore Ministry of Foreign Affairs from 2017 to 2021 as a country officer on the China desk and North America desk. Pung has a double Master's of Science in International Affairs from Peking University and the London School of Economics and a Bachelor of Science in Foreign Service from Georgetown University. Uh, Junzi Pung, welcome to National Security This Week. Thank you so much for having me, John. It's a real pleasure to be here and talk about Singapore and the strong U.S.-Singapore relationship. Is it okay if I call you JJ? I know that's the name you generally go by. Yes, please do. Please. Okay, all right. Uh, so we're on Zoom, you and me. Are you sitting at the uh, in your office at the embassy today? I am. It's a, it's a busy day. Lots of meetings lined up with Congress and other administration officials. Well, it's the day after the uh, State of the Union, so there's a lot happening right now. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So... JJ, we have a lot to cover. Singapore is an incredibly interesting nation. I'd like to dive right in if I could. Uh, can you give our listeners sort of a, a brief history of Singapore's founding as a nation? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'll just start by giving our listeners a, a picture in the mind of where Singapore sits because they might not be familiar with it. We're a small, sunny, tropical country located halfway across the world from the United States at the southernmost point of Asia within Southeast Asia. And that's where the Indian Ocean meets the Pacific Ocean. And Singapore is also a direct flight away from New York City, which is about an 18-hour flight, the longest in the world, in fact. So I encourage all listeners to visit. You know, it's a great entry point into Asia if you've never been to the region. Uh, Singapore is a city-state, which is kind of unique. It's about 274 square miles. That's about three and a half times the size of Washington, D.C., but still smaller than your smallest state, Rhode Island. Um, So that's sort of the overview. And getting back to our history, I think it can be divided into three distinct phases. Okay. The first being, you know, our colonial phase, or a British colony. So there was an indigenous trading settlement that existed on the island that is now Singapore back in the 14th century. But the British established Singapore as a trading port in 1819. And thereafter, we became a British crown colony. And I think... The reason why they did this is because they really recognized Singapore's strategic location at the center of Asia, right, at the crossroads of major trading routes. And to today, entrepot trade, that's import and then re-export, that still remains a big part of Singapore's economy. Um, And I think Singapore's British heritage also uh, defined the structure of our legal system, our political system, and our approach to business and economic management. So these institutions have contributed to Singapore's success today, I would say. Moving on to a second, very short-lived, but significant phase, which is when Singapore merged with Malaya as part of Malaysia from 1963 to 1965. And I think at that point in time, the relationship between Malaya and Singapore was uh, pretty much characterized by tensions. Mm. There was a fundamental incompatibility between uh, Singapore's multi-ethnic social and political vision. So we believe that all races should be treated equally. 
versus uh, Malaya's philosophy of Bumiputra. And what that means is sort of special privileges for the majority, the indigenous uh, Malays. Mm. So these are fundamental principles around which societies organize. So it's quite hard to reconcile. So after two years of uh, tumultuous relations, you know, Singapore was expelled and we became an independent nation in 1965. So that marks our third phase, independence from 1965 to present day. Uh, and I think it's worth noting that Singapore is very poor at a time of independence. Mm. We had no natural resources. And I don't think we were really expected to survive or do very well. Imagine if New York State just overnight ejected Manhattan and said, here, you become a sovereign country. I, I suspect Except there are people in New York who would actually agree with that, but uh, <laughs> we can press on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, but, you know, after the point is not ready yet. We were, I don't think we were strong enough to go in on our own at that time. But... The people and government of Singapore, I think, really focused on on education, on attracting uh, foreign direct investment to upgrade our economy and move up the value chain and setting in place good governance. So I think this was how Singapore moved eventually from third world to first, as as we would call it. And today, I think we rank amongst the top in terms of per capita income. For those of you who have visited Singapore, you know what I mean when I say that we're a very highly urbanized and modern city state. And I think on the whole, people are pretty happy and satisfied. So, J.J., you mentioned it. Uh, it's a multi-ethnic uh, culture uh, that inhabits Singapore, people from uh, lots of different parts of, uh, of Asia, uh, a lot of expats from around the world, from other countries that, that go live in your country because it is a phenomenal place. Can you kind of give us a breakdown of the multi-ethnic cultures that have made Singapore kind of a unique nation of the world? I, I know there are cultural influences from each of those ethnic groups, uh, and the people seem to have widely embraced uh, all of those different ethnic uh, cultures uh, to to create a kind of a unified Singapore. Yeah, absolutely. So I think overall, I would say that Singapore is a multicultural nation. We we do have several points of differences between our communities, but we also embrace that to form a strong, overarching national identity. So I'll I'll start with the differences. Okay. Uh, for your question. Um, so I think there's four sort of main ethnic groups or communities in Singapore. Uh, Chinese, about 75%. I myself am of Chinese uh, ethnicity. My grandparents immigrated from southern China about 80 years ago. Okay. And then we have Malays, about 14%, coming from the Malayan Peninsula and Indonesia. Indians, about 9% uh, from India, uh, of Indian heritage generally. And then we have the Eurasians, who are sort of the descendants of Europeans who settled in Singapore and married locals. And of course, foreigners, as you mentioned, expatriates. But I think uh, to give you an overview, I think our founding prime minister, Mr. Lee Kuan Yew, really said it best. You know, in 1965, on the day that Singapore became an independent nation, he said that Singapore is not a Malay nation. We're not a Chinese nation, not an Indian nation. Everyone will have a place in Singapore. And I think this was a two-part message, right? To One, to reassure the minorities that they will always be protected and not treated worse than the majority. At the same time, to also remind the majority not to overstep their bounds and make life miserable for those who are not the same color as them. Um, So Singapore's founding generation believed strongly in the vision of a multi-ethnic society, and that remains the case today. I think we believe strongly in equal representation of all races, we also celebrate the different religious holidays of each community as federal or national holidays equally, whether it's the Lunar New Year, Deepavali or Diwali, as is known more commonly in the United States, the Muslim New Year, Christmas, etc. And I think it's worth noting that racial minorities also celebrate you know, holidays that are not, not of your culture. So one of my best friends in Singapore is Indian, and this year he came over to my house to celebrate the Chinese New Year, the Lunar New Year with me. Um, and there's a famous street in Singapore where I think you can find a Buddhist temple, an Islamic mosque, and a Hindu temple side by side. Oh, wow. So that, <laughs> yeah, it's, that, that, I think that tableau really encapsulates the religious diversity we have in Singapore. Yeah. But, but even as we embrace actively the differences and diversity that set us apart, we also have a very strong overarching national identity, as I mentioned. And that's something the government deliberately set out to foster through a set of social policies. So I'll give you an example. For instance... All Singaporean males have to serve two years of mandatory military service, virtually no exceptions. That's a universal experience that binds males of all races together, regardless of your background and social economic class. Mm-hmm. And even though we all grow up speaking different languages at home, 
we all learn a common language, English, in school. So English is the language of administration, instruction, and commerce. It, it unifies Singaporeans without privileging any particular cultural group, and I think it also promotes international trade and diplomacy, of course. So the language system is quite interesting because Singaporeans also continue to retain their mother tongue as a second language to access their cultural heritage and to strengthen the sense of cultural belonging. So all Singaporeans grow up being at least bilingual, if not more. I think another pretty interesting case study is public housing estates, and that's where about ninety percent of the population lives. Okay, right. can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the government deliberately ensures that there is a balanced mix of Chinese and Malays and Indians in, in housing estates. Uh, so each housing estate is a microcosm of society with residents of all races, and the idea is really to increase opportunities for interaction and build familiarity with other practices and customs. As well as to prevent the formation of, you know, racial enclaves. Mm. And last but not least, I think some things are just universally the hallmark of a Singaporean, like the love of street food and a good bargain. <laughs> so if you ever want to strike up a conversation with a Singaporean, you can just instantly break the ice by talking about food. I guarantee it. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> so English being sort of the common language is that a holdover from the colonial days under the British Empire as a colonial holding? Yeah, I think I think partly, of course, that was uh, introduced by, by the British, you know, when they were administering Singapore. But there was also a conscious decision to retain that after we became independent, because we saw that English is, you know, the international language. It helps us uh, connect to the world uh, more easily. And for the other reasons I mentioned about it being, you know, for equity. Yeah. So and I think, uh, yeah, sorry, go on. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, actually, now that it comes to find Singapore is quite similar to the United States in, in this respect, I think, because it's we're a mix of cultures and immigrants from all over the world, right? And I think, yes, you identify as your ethnicity, but first and foremost, your nationality. So I'm a Singaporean before I'm Chinese. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the things that, that, I, that I've... So I've been to your country, uh, did port calls there when I was in the United States Navy, and, and there was a strong national identity, regardless of who I talked to, of being from Singapore, right? I mean, this is this is my country. I heard that from a lot of different people, and it was uh, really heartwarming to see that. Uh, just a really great place to visit. Uh, we'll take a quick, quick break here. So for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is J.J. Pung from the Embassy of Singapore in Washington, D.C., and we're discussing Singapore. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. You can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, so, JJ, I want to I want to take a closer look at the political system that you have. It's obvious from you know what you've just shared with us uh, that people respect uh, the government. Uh, the government has been very thoughtful about how to organize society, how to create uh, a strong sort of central identity as being a Singaporean, uh, regardless of what your ethnic background, regardless of what your primary language is, and everybody speaks English. I think it would be instructive for, for all of our listeners, and me, by the way, uh, to hear you talk a little bit about this, the political system in Singapore. What, what is Singapore's political system? What are the political parties, main players inside that system? I'm not asking you to take sides and tell us which one is the best or anything like that. Just the structure of your government, I think, would be fascinating for us to learn about. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Those are some big questions. I think I'll start by answering the question about, you know, what is Singapore's political system before addressing the political parties part of it. Okay. Yeah. So to to begin, I mean, since our independence in, in 1965, we have a, a parliamentary democracy system. So for listeners that may not be familiar with that, that means that the executive derives its legitimacy from being able to support the legislature, which is our parliament. I think that's unlike the United States where, your executive does not, you know, derive the legitimacy from the legislature, Congress, and the administration are two separate co-equal branches of government. Um, I think another key difference in the United States is that in Singapore, the head of state and head of government are two different people. Okay. The government and cabinet is currently led by our prime minister, Mr. Lee Sien Long of the People's Action Party. And the head of state is uh, President, Madam Halima Yaakob. So the way it works is the president is the head of state appoints the prime minister and the prime minister is a member of parliament who commands the confidence of the majority of the other members of parliament. And then thereafter, the members of the cabinet are appointed from amongst uh, this pool of members of parliament by the president on advice of the prime minister. Um, 
And similar to the U.S. system, I think the prime minister and the cabinet are responsible for all government policies and the day-to-day administration of the affairs of the state. Uh, and I'll talk about the role of the president in Singapore, which is more limited. So uh, according to our constitution, the president has custodial powers, not executive powers. So this means that the president can veto or block government actions in specified areas, but doesn't have the role to advance his or her own policy agenda. Mm. So that's, and that's the role of the prime minister and cabinet. What the president has, however, is the moral authority to say no, if necessary, to the elected government, which is a very important function. And the president as head of state is also the figure that's representing Singapore at ceremonies domestically and internationally. Okay. That's a lot to take in. I'll stop there for a second. No, no, that's that good. Right? You can keep going. That's, that, we're, we're tracking. Okay. Uh, and moving on to the second part. Um, so the biggest political party in Singapore is the People's Action Party. It's been the ruling party since our independence. Uh, we, we also have an increasing number of opposition parties in, uh, in parliament and in, uh, within the Singapore political system today, uh, the biggest of which is the Workers' Party. Uh, and there's a few others as well. But you asked why, uh, you know, question why Singapore has done well. So I think there's three aspects that I would highlight. Uh, one, I think one of the hallmarks of our features of our governance and success story is our ability to carry out long-term planning. Mm, yeah. Um, you know, we can plan, for instance, infrastructure projects like the upgrading and creation of subway lines that cuts across the whole of Singapore and it takes a decade. Uh, and that's something that we have done and are doing. So there's long-term consistency in our policies. We don't generally have abrupt policy changes, even between general elections and changes in parliament. And I think that's something that you know, foreign investors like about Singapore, but very predictable, <laughs> uh, which is a good thing. It contributed to our economic success. Once we attracted the first wave of foreign direct investment, or FDI, to provide jobs in, in manufacturing for our population in the 1970s and 80s, uh, then the government started the transition towards advanced manufacturing and services to move up the value chain. You know, we systematically upgraded our sectors. We put in place training programs for our workers to be able to adapt for the future. And that's how we became uh, an advanced economy, I would say, in a, in a matter of a few decades. Um, and the second aspect I would highlight is that I think the government has a strong set of interlocking social and economic policies that work together to promote desirable outcomes. I'll give an example, uh, you know, what we mentioned just now about interracial relations, because I think it's it's a pretty unique feature that the Singapore story we're proud of. When we talk about racial harmony, mm-hmm. that kind of peace doesn't come naturally, I would say. You know, at Singapore's birth, there was actually very little interaction between the different ethnic groups, which I think was intended uh, to some degree by uh, the British. Mm-hmm. The different communities were segregated, and this actually hindered the development of mutual understanding and trust between communities there wasn't really any social cohesion to speak of. So the Singapore government realized that, you know, that needs to change. So during when we went about urban planning, we built many common spaces for people of different races to interact and realized that they have more in common than differences, actually. Public schools, public parks, national service, for instance. You know, we recite the national pledge every day in schools. Um, so that, that reminds us of, of what we have in common but at the same time, we also have tough laws to make sure that this precious uh, racial harmony isn't jeopardized. So the government has outlawed, for instance, hate speech that incites division and violence between communities. That's not acceptable. We've banned extremist speech in person and online as well, uh, just to show how seriously we take this issue. But I don't want to give the impression that we're successful at everything. There's a lot of problems that Singapore still faces. Uh, for instance, I think one is the problem of declining birth rates. Yeah, that, well, that, that's kind of a universal challenge in all of the developed countries around the world is that we have declining birth rates, right? Yeah, it is. It is. I think many Asian economies. Ours is quite serious. Our total fertility rate is 1.1. Okay. So that's way below the replacement level of 2.1. Right. So, you know, despite, despite our best efforts to incentivize people to have more children through monetary subsidies for babies and more maternity leave, people just aren't having more children. <laughs> so, you know. Policies can't solve everything. Yeah. Uh, and the, the third aspect I would highlight is actually, I think we're a city state. Um, so a dense, it's very densely populated. We're a small city state, as I mentioned. That makes it easy for the government to implement policies and then monitor them and then tweak them, adjust as necessary. Because there's essentially only one level of government, really. 
I think it's a lot harder in big countries where you have multiple layers of federal government, state government, local government, each with different areas of authority, and sometimes you're from different political parties. Uh, it's hard. So some developing countries have, I think, looked to Singapore model for inspiration, but it's not always easily replicable. I'll stop there for now. Uh, just out of curiosity, what what is the population size of Singapore? How many people live in Singapore? Yeah, I think it's about five and a half million. Okay, well, that's yep. almost exactly the same population size as the state of Minnesota, but you're consolidated into 240 square miles, <laughs> and, and yes. we're across an entire state here in, in the state of Minnesota. So way denser. Yeah, incredibly dense uh, population uh, in the city-state of Singapore. Uh, I do find it fascinating that you talked about sort of the central planning that is done uh, and the the national identity that has been created as a result of that. You, you make a really good point about the fact that you really have just one layer of government uh, and you can have a comprehensive approach to it because you are uh, so densely populated in, in one location. What do you think the strengths are of that for your society and, and maybe what the the detractors might be? Since you're, you're a well-traveled, extremely well-educated young man, uh, explain to us what you think is uh, the benefit of that system for, for the people of Singapore. Yeah, I think there, well, the, the benefits is that, you know, I think there's a very high level of trust uh, amongst the people in our government. There's an innate trust that uh, the government um, is always going to do the right thing and has the capacity uh, to identify the problem and then, uh, you know, come up with appropriate solutions to to address the problem and then implement it. Um, I think we saw that very much during the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, because, um, you know, there were a lot of tough measures that had to be imposed. Countries all over the world did it. Yeah. We had to implement mask, <clears throat> excuse me, mask wearing, for instance, um, we had to implement social distancing, vaccine mandates. And as you know, there was pushback, you know, from from populations in many countries across the world, because it's not something that comes naturally. And I mean, yes, there was unhappiness uh, amongst the population in Singapore, of course, but they understood that I think that this is something that needed to be done. And they trusted that uh, the government is going to see uh, the country, uh, see the country through it. So uh, I think that really um, worked out well. That's kind of an example of it. Uh, sometimes it's gone the other way, in fact, where the people sometimes expect the government to be able to solve all the problems, <laughs> uh, which is obviously not possible, right? There's a lot of things that, you know, uh, private affairs, commercial affairs that need to be sorted out. Um, but on the whole, I think that that strong sense of uh, trust, that social compact between the people and the government has contributed to stability um, political stability, economic stability, social stability in Singapore over the decades. Um, and that's something that continues to attract people, as you mentioned, attract companies to set up bases in Singapore, people to immigrate to Singapore. Uh, and I think that makes us stronger in the long run. Yeah. You know, you bring up a good point about trust. Uh, there was a study that I saw not long ago, and, and, and COVID-19 was a great sort of test case for that. Uh, there were some countries, like you said, who, that fared incredibly well during COVID-19, where the population, well-educated societies that understand that they have elected people to government who are knowledgeable about public policy, who are literally trying to do the right thing, uh, that those societies that have a high level of trust in government tend to be well-educated societies. Finland was one that had uh, the people really trusted government. Singapore ranked right up there near the top. Uh, so uh, that that that's great to hear it from you as well, that there's a recognition of that uh, with the people of Singapore, that there's strong trust in government, that government really is trying to do the right thing, that people respect the expertise of the people who are serving in government, that they've spent entire careers studying these issues like public health and other other topics. If I, if I could, I'd, I'd like to step into uh, a discussion on Singapore's economy uh, for a bit, uh, just before we hit our, our, our break here. Uh, maybe we can get started on it, and then we can follow it up after the short break. Singapore's sure. economy, as you mentioned, has been very strong for many years, lots of foreign direct investment. You've moved kind of up in the uh, value chain. Uh, as a strategically vital location, a, a natural port on one of the busiest maritime shipping routes in the world, Singapore has benefited greatly from geography uh, and from smart economic planning, as you mentioned. Uh, can you talk more about Singapore's economy? What are your major imports and exports? Who are your most important trading partners? Uh, that sort of thing. Could you uh, en enlighten us, please? Yeah, of course. So uh, let me start by giving an overview of Singapore's economy before talking about some 
broad trends that support our economic development. I, I may have mentioned this at the start, but trade is really the lifeblood of Singapore's economy. I think has been our founding since as a part as a colony. To today, trade is still over three times the size of our GDP. I, I think the last figure is about 3.5 or 3.6. And to draw a comparison, I think trade is probably no more than 25% of America's GDP. So we're much more reliant on it, um, especially uh, in terms of imports. You know, Singapore is very small. We have virtually no natural resources to speak of. I think one of the common themes you'll hear if you go to Singapore is that really our, the only resources that we have to rely on is our people, uh, human resources. That's a pretty important so, one. <laughs> <laughs> it's one we've made our, our living on, I would say. So, so very early on during the era of decolonization, I think unlike some of the countries in the region, we place our bets on export-oriented industrialization rather than import substitution, which was very popular at the time due to prevailing ideologies. And that decision was made because we have virtually no no hinterland to speak of, uh, no resources, as I mentioned, and a very small domestic market. There's a, you know, there's a limit to how much you can sell to yourself. <laughs> so today, our economy is driven mainly by exports in Advanced manufacturing, including electronics, uh, semiconductors, and that's a little-known fact, actually. You know, semiconductors have really great, gained, I think, significance in the discourse uh, uh, this year in the last few years. Just, but actually, just a bit. <laughs> yeah. Just a bit. We're, we're actually a, a major uh, semiconductor uh, node, I think, in the economy. We don't produce the most high-tech, advanced chips, but a lot of the mature ones, they go into you know, your washing machines, for instance. Pharmaceuticals chemicals, machinery, so those kind of high-level, uh, high-value exports. Another big pillar of our industry is financial services um, and professional services more broadly. So you may know Singapore as a regional finance hub, often mentioned in the same breath as Hong Kong or Switzerland. You know, often compared to the Switzerland of Asia. So all the big banks, the professional services, consulting, law firms have a presence here in Singapore. Um, so I think American visitors to Singapore will find it very familiar. It kind of resembles New York City in, in a sense. Uh, and some other emerging industries are tourism, clean energy, uh, healthcare, aerospace engineering. I think all these contribute to, to Singapore's economy, which we're trying to diversify as much as possible, of course. Um, I, I, I can go on? Yeah. Yeah, please. Yeah. So I, I think there are three factors I think would highlight as uh, trends that have led to, you know, our, our economic success. One, which is uh, a free trade agreement or FTA, this is known strategy. Uh, Singapore, I think, has gone about deliberately pursuing FTAs with our major trading partners. Uh, and the idea is really to grow overseas markets that we can export to, and of course, import uh, necessary items as well. Uh, I mentioned, but as really a uh, I think a limit to how much you can make selling to your domestic population of five and a half million. <laughs> so in contrast, the, the world of six billion is the limit. So obviously it's it's a strategy that makes sense. Um, and I think relevant to our listeners in the United States, we conducted an FTA with the United States in 2003. That was in fact the US's first FTA of an Asian country. And I think it is a gold standard agreement, uh, which you know really blazed the path for the US to have FTAs of other Asian countries, and it still remains very much a high standard agreement today. Uh, so I should note that the U.S. at some point ran a trade surplus of more than twenty billion U.S. dollars of Singapore, and Singaporean direct investments in the U.S. support over two hundred fifty thousand U.S. jobs. So I think the FTA has been very beneficial not only to Singapore but to the United States as well. So I hope our American friends agree with that. Uh, and we moved on after that from signing bilateral FTAs with other major partners, uh, which we have uh, with many countries in the world today, to pursuing a strategy of plurilateral FTAs with groups of countries. Uh, our listeners may have heard of the CPTPP, which stands for the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is essentially an, an FTA between 11 countries, including Singapore, that collectively cover 13.5% of the global economy and some new areas as well. Uh, the United States has pulled out that, but we remain hopeful that can rejoin the CPTPP at some point in time when it's ready. 
uh, or, or at least some sort not, of Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, framework agreement, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think there was a lot of effort because the U.S. is obviously a, a huge um, economy that constituted a big part of it, of, of the, the he- collective heft of the CPTPP. Um, and many countries in the region, including Singapore, are very hungry to have great economic engagement with the U.S. Yeah. Uh, JJ, if we could, uh, it, we're at the, uh, the the midpoint of the show. Need to take just a quick, about a 45-second break uh, to identify our sponsor. I'll be right back with you. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. The Cybersecurity Summit brings together cyber experts from industry, academia, and all levels of government to explore challenges, solutions, and opportunities in the cyber arena. The three-day summit includes speakers, workshops, discussions about advancing a cyber career, and keynote addresses by top leaders from across the cyber community. Learn more at cybersecuritysummit.org. And we're back at uh, National Security This Week, and our guest is J.J. Pung from the uh, Embassy of Singapore in Washington, D.C., and we're talking about Singapore. Uh, so, J.J., uh, we were, we're talking a little bit about your trade partnerships that you have, uh, free trade agreements, both uh, bilateral and multilateral. Uh, who, which countries are your most important trading partners? I know you have a, an agreement with the United States that's uh, been very beneficial to both our countries. Which, which other countries are really vital to, uh, to Singapore's economy, economic development? Yes, of course. Um, so I think, uh, you know, with many countries in the world, China is our largest trading partner today. Yeah. And that's uh, a function, of course, of uh, geography in the region, because um, as well as the size of its economy and the strength of links that we have between our two economies. Um, the United States, of course, not trade per se, actually, it's one of our largest trading partners, but uh, the United States is also the largest foreign direct uh, investor in Singapore. And as I mentioned, I think the U.S. has really been a key driving force of uh, Singapore's economic development. Um, you know, the, the industries that have set up shop in Singapore have really brought technology, have brought skills and know-how that help, have helped the Singapore workforce to become trained, uh, which is why there's an incredible, I think, pool of goodwill for, for America. I mean, not only because of TV shows, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> like Orange County, but uh, really, I think the very constructive and benign presence that the United States has had we, of course, trade very closely with our partner, of our immediate neighbors as well, which I'll get into, I think, later when we discuss that. Um, and really, I think most, a lot of countries across the world, especially within the ASEAN Southeast Asian region. And, and, um, what, and if we could, uh, I mean, we're halfway yeah. through the show, and I, I really want to make sure that we spend plenty of time talking about kind of the security issues, because that really is a fascinating topic in, in your part of the world. Uh, Singapore's role in the region, you mentioned a member of ASEAN, you trade a lot with your ASEAN partners. Your country is located at the end of the Malay Peninsula, uh, strategically located uh, across the water from uh, the Malaysian city of uh, Johor, and you're about 150 miles southeast of Malaysia's capital, Kuala Lumpur. You're also just across the Strait of Malacca from uh, Indonesia. It's a massive archipelago with about 250 million people. Uh, maybe more. It's kind of hard to know exactly what the population is. Uh, what can you tell us about being a partner nation in this uh, area of the world, member of the Associated Association of Southeast Asian Nations, ASEAN? What, what regional dynamics uh, have Singapore's greatest focus right now in your part of the world? Sure. Yeah, that's that's a great question, um, and I'm happy to talk about that. Uh, maybe I'll talk a bit about Southeast Asia first, okay. and then and the regional organization that we have there, which is the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, known as ASEAN, for talking about individual countries. Uh, so I think and many Americans may not necessarily be aware of this, but I think it's important to highlight that Southeast Asia is actually an incredibly important economic region for the United States. It's amongst the fastest growing, most dynamic and innovative regions of the world right now. You know, we have 600 million people, most of them young. I think 60% are below the age of 35. Yeah. So... Uh, on on track, I think if current economic development trends persist to possibly be the fourth largest economy by 2030 or 2040, um, you know, behind the U.S. and China and India. So it's really got a lot of potential. And the U.S. actually has more investments in Southeast Asia than China, Japan and South Korea combined, uh, which, again, some people seems counterintuitive to some people. And I would add that 80 percent of, of U.S. investment in Southeast Asia is actually in Singapore. So, again, I think Singapore, it's fair to say that we're the heart of the U.S.'s economic strategy and presence within Southeast Asia. 
and arguably Asia. And we have served and continue to serve as a springboard for U.S. businesses to access the rest of the region and expand their, their markets and opportunities. So that's Southeast Asia. Um, and then moving on to talk about ASEAN. Uh, so yes, you're right. Singapore is a member of ASEAN, which currently comprises 10 member countries. Singapore is one of the founding members, along with uh, Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand and the Philippines, and then Brunei, Vietnam, Myanmar, Cambodia and Laos joined later. And the latest is that Timor Leste is also currently in the process of seeking to be an ASEAN member as well. So ASEAN is not necessarily very well known uh, in the United States. Um, we actually had uh, a summit uh, last year, in fact, where the Biden administration invited the, the leaders of the ASEAN countries um, to Washington, D.C. And I think that was really a recognition of how much importance that ASEAN plays, I think, within the United States global strategy. But as an organization, ASEAN has a huge mandate. Uh, while we're, how we can think about it, maybe some of the three most important functions. Uh, at the political level, I think ASEAN is intended to provide a platform to settle differences and avoid conflict between ASEAN member states. I think we've been reasonably successful at that so far. At economic level, one of its tasks is to promote uh, the rules-based economic integration between ASEAN countries, basically to facilitate trade within the region, the development of an economic community. And at a people-to-people level, it supports the building of an ASEAN community and identity beyond your countries. So personally, I think we've made quite a lot of progress on this. You know, the ASEAN embassies in any city, including Washington, D.C., are always very close to each other. When I travel abroad as a tourist, you know, I'm always happy to see a fellow ASEAN tourist. I think there's a sense of kinship in some sense. Um, and, and ASEAN is actually a really incredibly important institution for Singapore. So we're a small country in the world, as I've mentioned. And having ASEAN as a platform, I think, really magnifies our voice and reach. Um, it's just so easier for us to engage bigger countries because sometimes bigger countries would prefer to talk to ASEAN collectively than engage 10 individual countries at once. It's just the reality of it. Mm-hmm. So I would say that Singapore plays a, a crucial role by helping the United States to to understand ASEAN and its internal dynamics and processes. Because as you know, any regional organization always has its own complex organizational structure, which is not immediately apparent to external partners. And likewise, Singapore wants the United States to play a bigger role in the region and deepen its cooperation with ASEAN in, in all the areas I've mentioned. So think of Singapore as a bridge connecting these ASEAN and the United States. Um, I would say that Singapore has excellent relations with, with its ASEAN partners in, in general. Uh, one of the issues that we're grappling with, as you may know, is the tragic situation in, in Myanmar right now, yeah. or Burma, as it's more commonly known in America. Right. Um, I think uh, ASEAN is doing its best to facilitate dialogue between all parties to achieve national reconciliation and to end the violence. But it will probably be a long process, unfortunately. And we're also delivering humanitarian assistance to help alleviate the suffering of the people in Myanmar. But we don't want to let that you know, distract from what I think is a primary focus, which is to really support Southeast Asia's you know, economic growth post-COVID, its development agenda, and bringing benefits to the people of the region. And the U.S. can contribute greatly to that agenda. If I could ask a follow-up question on that, on that, uh, so sure. just for our for our American listeners, when we think of sort of a, you know, an alliance of nations, so to speak, uh, NATO is the first thing that typically comes to mind because it's been around for so long. Uh, NATO has a lot of component parts. It's a, a political element, much like ASEAN. You know how to solve disputes peacefully between uh, neighboring countries. Uh, there's also a strong kind of an economic aspect to it, uh, a little different than the European Union construct, but still uh, an important economic aspect. But there's also the mutual defense treaty part of it, the Article 5 part of uh, NATO that, that most people are, are very familiar with. Uh, ASEAN is not like that. You're not a, you're not a defense alliance per se. You're, it's, it's really more of an association of countries uh, to help solve political uh, differences, uh, without coming to blows and to really develop economically uh, more than anything else, right? I mean, you don't have defined defense agreements between the ASEAN partners if somebody from the outside were to attack one nation in ASEAN. That there's not a we're all going to come to each other's aid, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely right, and I think that's that's by design. ASEAN is not it's not a NATO. It's we're very different from the EU as well. As a matter of fact, um, yeah, uh, it's it's maybe difficult to appreciate, but actually, there's an incredible diversity between the ten ASEAN countries. You know, we have very different political systems. Some are monarchies, some are parliamentary republics. Different ideologies, different even strategic interests. I would say so. It's very hard, and it's not intended to form any kind of defense alliance pact. So, but as you mentioned, ASEAN is really provided intended as a platform to for countries to get together and talk about the differences. You know, there's sometimes there's criticism of ASEAN. Uh, I think as a talk shop, right? Just talking and talking. But I think that process is actually very important. Because one of the hallmarks of ASEAN is that we make decisions by consensus. We don't want to do things that um, make other, any of the ASEAN countries uncomfortable. So that process of discussion, negotiation, that's actually really important. And I think it has contributed to ASEAN's longevity as a political institution. I, I think when we talk about you know kind of regional security dynamics, which I'd like to get into a little bit more shortly, uh, but it, I mean, China, yeah. China is an, an incredibly important trading partner uh, for everybody in the world, frankly, including the United States. Uh, but China's, you know, they're sort of uh, pushing their weight around a little bit. They're a very strong country. They they would like to have a little more uh, control in, in the region, including in Southeast Asia. Uh, for the ASEAN countries, I know, having watched this over the course of my uh, career in national security, which now spans about uh, you know thirty five years, uh, ASEAN comes together pretty well to sort of let their voice be heard in Beijing. Uh, they don't appreciate being pushed around uh, by Beijing. Um, a situation, I th- you know, you mentioned uh, the tragic situation in Myanmar. Uh, obviously, China has been deeply involved in that uh, in that situation, as you well know. Uh, is it sort of uh, is it is the challenge from Beijing sort of driving the ASEAN countries a little more closely together to stay more aligned, more consensus to make sure that uh, everybody is sort of well protected? Not not really a defense alliance per se, but but more you're stronger together than you are individually. Is that is that sort of a mindset that's taking over in the ASEAN uh, partnership? Right. Um, you know, I, I think broadly, as you alluded to, there's in this kind of era of heightened uh, geopolitical competition and all the challenges that we face in our world today, that sense of vulnerability has contributed to uh, ASEAN countries clinging together. I think we realize very much that uh, a lot of these challenges are really immense and they require the cooperation of, uh, and to some degree, the, the alignment of all 10 countries because we have more influence when we come together rather than um, you know each country espousing different positions um, so to the extent possible, ASEAN, uh, you know, the foreign ministers or the leaders come together and try to put together common uh, statements and positions on issues just to say that, hey, ASEAN is uh, really the center of the security architecture in Southeast Asia. We have a particular view of this and we take the view that other external partners who hope to engage ASEAN um, should take ASEAN's views seriously. Um, so I think, uh, you know, broadly, it's no secret that uh, competition between the United States and China that has global effects rippling across uh, the world in terms of uh, geostrategic competition, in terms of um, economic uh, competition, maybe even the risk of uh, the decoupling of economy. So those are issues that have worried ASEAN. All, I think all ASEAN countries um, kept them up at night and we've uh, really made that a priority to try and uh, address and facilitate and provide a platform for these major powers to come together and hopefully work out the differences. Um, so l- last year, when I think there was an ASEAN summit in Cambodia, we saw it as healthy that, that the United States and China, uh, these leaders came together and really were able to have a healthy and frank exchange of differences. I think you also asked just now about our relations with Myanmar and Indonesia. Uh, sorry, Malaysia and Indonesia, our immediate neighbors. Yeah, I, I'd like to bring up a point on that. I, I think it's sort of fascinating Um uh... A few years ago, you you may re- remember this, but uh, piracy was a big problem in the Strait of Malacca. Uh, it was really a scourge in, in the region. And I know that uh, Singapore, Indonesia, and Malaysia came together uh, to partner to combat piracy. So that was actually a security partnership that was created uh, to deal with that challenge of piracy. I think most of it came out of the Aceh province in Indonesia, 
was primarily where a lot of the challenges came from. But I think there was also, you know, further beyond the Strait of Malacca and the South China Sea, there were elements in uh, uh, pirates operating out of Singapore, out of uh, the, the Philippines that were also a bit of a challenge. Is this a good sort of a good example of the professional security cooperation between Singapore and your neighboring nations in the region? Uh, I mean, this is sort of a a shared challenge that the countries had, the, your, you know, you and your your partner nations in this counter-piracy effort. Uh, is that a success, an example of success? Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a great example. And that's actually a great segue to talk about, you know, security cooperation. So Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, we all have a shared stake in ensuring the safety of the Straits of Malacca and Singapore. It's a major shipping lane. Um, one third, about one third of global container trade and about one quarter of global oil trade transit through it every year. So it's, you know, it's a huge strategic choke point. Yeah. So let me talk about what Singapore is, is doing uh, in that regard. Our Maritime and Port Authority, uh, Singapore Police Coast Guard, the Singapore Navy work to ensure the security of these territorial waters 24-7. Uh, we obviously also work very closely with our Indonesian and Malaysian counterparts to exchange information and discuss ways to strengthen cooperation and take action you know, against these pirates or other threats at sea and ashore. There's also a regional, what they call an information fusion center, which is under Singapore's control. And that provides a platform for us to have multinational information sharing and collaborate with partners, including the United States. We also work with Thailand to conduct regular coordinated sea and air patrols to carry out and join training and exercises to deal with maritime incidents together. So there's a lot of cooperation between countries required to deal with this, this, this scourge of piracy, as you've mentioned. And I would say that this is, also an, this is an issue that the United States is also very concerned about, as you're probably well aware, John. You know, One of the areas that the United States is hoping to work with Southeast Asia now is to strengthen maritime security and maritime domain awareness yep. so that countries have a, a better awareness of threats like piracy and IUU, illegal and unregulated fishing, um, and more able to, to take action to address those problems. So I think Singapore has expertise and experience to contribute in this regard. And we always hope to play a constructive role. That, that, and that's a good point. I actually have uh, here a press release uh, that just came out. This was 11 January, so just less than a month ago. Uh, there was a, a three-ship U.S. Navy uh, squadron that was doing what's called Cooperation Afloat Readiness and Training, or a carrot exercise, uh, along with a marine exercise, with the Republic of Singapore, which happened on January 8th. A bilateral exercise between the U.S. Navy and the, and the Singapore uh, Navy. Uh, these are the kind of exercises that take place kind of routinely that build up that security cooperation. Uh, as I, I, I'm fond of quoting some friends of mine uh, that thought of this well before me, but you really can't surge trust in a crisis. Uh, you have to build up that trust with partner nations over a long period of time and the competence of being able to work together on security issues. Uh, having the opportunity to, to have been partners uh, uh, with Singapore for so very long in the maritime arena, uh, I think the U.S. and Singapore have a very strong relationship in the maritime security uh, domain, uh, maritime domain awareness, as you were mentioning. That's very, very critical. Uh, so I'm going to ask you an, another another follow-up question on that. Like I mentioned, I was fortunate during my time in the Navy to have a port call in Singapore. Uh, very impressed with your nation. I uh, wish I could visit it more often. But as you said, it's you know it's a long flight away. Uh, your people, incredibly friendly. Everything was clean, functioned well. Uh, I, I, from what I could see, very little crime. Uh, the U.S. Navy loves that strong partnership with Singapore. It's one of the fantastic port calls that uh, that our Navy has when we get the opportunity to pull into Singapore. Uh, and you mentioned, uh, from your perspective, the United States is a considered a very important partner. I would tell you from my perspective as an American, as a, as a retired naval officer, we deeply value that, that partnership with Singapore. Uh, a little bit more on this, the, the security partnerships with the United States. What, what other secu critical security partnerships does Singapore enjoy with allies and friends both in the region and elsewhere around the world? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm very glad you brought that up, John, because I think the close security relationship that Singapore and the U.S. has is often undernoticed. It's a very problem-free relationship, and I want to help our listeners understand it better. So as, as you mentioned, I think Singapore is really one of, if not America's most important security partners in Southeast Asia. And we play, I would say, a pretty critical role in bolstering the U.S. military presence in, in Asia and Indo-Pacific. So this really goes back to I think the 1990s, when the U.S. left uh, its Clark Air Base and Subic Bay Naval Base in the Philippines. 
So at that time, Singapore made the decision to step up and offer the U.S. access to our facilities, which is how you ended up in Singapore today. Uh, this is because we saw the value that the you know the American security presence brought to Southeast Asia. Right, it ensures peace and stability that really forms the bedrock for countries to pursue economic development. So today we host the rotational deployment of U.S. military aircraft and U.S. Navy ships. And this facilitates the patrols in the region, the participation in multilateral naval exercises, and the responses to humanitarian disasters as well, uh, which is important. So you really have to be there at Changi Naval Base in Singapore. Looking at this, you know, it's a broad sweep. You can see all these majestic U.S. aircraft carriers and littoral combat ships. And that site, I think, really drives in how closely we work together. You know, it's a must-see for, I would say, U.S. government visitors. We had the Vice President Kamala Harris when she visited, um, and then then Speaker of the House of Representatives Nancy Pelosi. I think, if I'm not mistaken, also saw it during the trips to Singapore. You know, I myself have had the pleasure of accompanying visiting members of Congress to sing uh, there as well. And last August, when I was uh, with them, I boarded the uh, inside of uh, a literal combat ship station in Singapore, and it was very impressive. I'll tell you that. Uh, the reverse is actually also true. So it's not just the U.S. and Singapore, but it's a little known fact, but Singapore actually maintains one of the largest foreign military training contingents in the United States. Uh, we have several hundred military personnel training in America each year, including those stationed at detachments in Arizona and Idaho. And these help to keep our armed forces very tightly integrated, interoperable, to build up trust, as you mentioned. Um, and, uh, you know, the security partnership doesn't end there. We cooperate very closely on international law enforcement, cybersecurity, anti-piracy, counter-narcotics, counter-terrorism. That's very important to countries in the region. So all in all, you know, I think the U.S.-Singapore security partnership is a very strong foundation for regional security in Southeast Asia, uh, so much that we form a unique category. We're actually America's only major security cooperation partner. It's a term that was created for Singapore, uh, and that's because Singapore also doesn't, um, we don't pursue alliances with any country by choice. So I'll stop there for now. There's a lot to take in. No, that, that, that's great. And, and what other countries do you have strong partnerships with? Is it like Australia? Do you still have a strong connection to the United Kingdom? I mean, there's a lot of cultural similarities there that, that have existed from way back. Uh, are, are there strong security partnerships with those countries as well? Not, not treaties per se, but partnerships. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Singapore is very small, as I've mentioned, um, teen time, so we don't necessarily have a lot of place, space for our troops um, to train. So uh, it, it's not just the United States. I think our troops, the Singapore Armed Forces, also train in um, in Australia, in Thailand, in Germany, in France, and we purchase uh, uh, military assets from these partners as well. Um, so very close um, relationships there. And I think more broadly about a security architecture in the region, right? I think we take the view that it's best to have overlapping circles of friends in a region. Yeah. And so we welcome all, all countries to participate actively in within uh, the region. We don't take the view that only countries that are geographically situated in Asia have a right to be here. I think all countries who are interested to play a constructive role should do so. So that means that we welcome security cooperation with the U.S., with China, Japan, Korea, India, the Europeans, you know, the more stakeholders that are involved, the more stable the region, I would say. Yeah, that that's a great perspective. And that, I think, goes back to sort of the founding principles of Singapore, the inclusiveness. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I think uh, having more countries in the region also uh, makes uh, the security architecture more inclusive. That's a point that we've uh, emphasize very much, I think, my foreign minister, my prime minister has made the point, we don't want any power or any country to be excluded from the region because we think that everyone has a constructive role to play. Yeah. Uh, so, JJ, we have about six minutes or so left this morning. Uh, I always try to give my guests kind of the final word on this uh, Wednesday morning show. Uh, what haven't I asked you about your country, Singapore, uh, that I should have asked you? Or, or what final thoughts would you would like to leave with our listeners uh, over the course of, the, say, the next five minutes or so? Yeah, um, you know, there's so much we haven't managed to discuss today. You know, I could recite the top 25 tourist attractions in Singapore, <laughs> but I, I really want to emphasize some of the most important messages for our, our listeners, I, I think. So if there's only one thing that you take away today, please remember that 
Singapore is a critical partner to the United States, right? I think for three reasons, as we've talked about over the course of this interview. Uh, one, on the economic front, you know, Singapore is an important economic partner to the United States uh, because we're a gateway to Asia. We help the U.S. unlock the economic potential of the region. Uh, two, in terms of you know, even people-to-people relations, Singapore and the U.S. also have shared values. We're both committed to multiculturalism, diversity, um, inclusion of different races. So the values that are important to the United States are also important to Singapore. I think this forms the foundation of our societies. And three, you know, perhaps most of interest to our listeners today, we're very close security partners. We've talked about it just now. Uh, Singapore supports the U.S. military presence in Asia to maintain regional and global security. And I think more broadly, we're very supportive of American leadership in the world as well. I, I did see uh, that uh, Singapore has opened back up for tourism, uh, and you mentioned it when we were talking about the economy earlier uh, in the show, how important tourism is to uh, the economy in Singapore. Uh, I know that uh, Chinese tourists have flocked to Singapore in the past. Uh, are they starting to come back yet? Uh, I did see one uh, news report that was uh, an offer on the part of Singapore to cover airline uh, tickets to get people to come visit because uh, you you really want to rebuild the uh, the tourist uh, industry in your country. Is is that is that all coming together now? Yeah, yeah. Um, tourism is definitely a rising, uh, increasingly important sector of our economy. Um, and of course, you know, we've had a lot of visitors from China, from countries in the region um, that really formed the bedrock of our tourism industry. You know, geography plays a part, obviously. So very early on, I think we're, we're very open and interconnected um, economy and society, you know, both, both in terms of economic links, but people to people links as well. We're a business hub and it was just not feasible for us to remain closed during the pandemic for, for too long. I think to be assessed that that would do a lot of damage to the economy. So we opened up as soon as possible and now we're fully open. You know, tourists, uh, tourists from anywhere can come to Singapore and enjoy uh, our beautiful sites. Um, so there's a, lot, there's a lot to recommend. Um, a lot of resources, in fact, I recommend for our listeners in case they would like to learn more about Singapore. I do want to ask you about that, but uh, I have one other question to ask you. So you're an, you're an island nation. Uh, 200, That's right. 240 square miles, 5.5 million people. Uh, you have a very advanced technology uh, industries in, in your country. Uh, how much of a challenge is climate change uh, for the people of Singapore? How much is your government looking at the issue of climate change? Uh, and I ask this because we've done a number of shows here on, on National Security this week looking at the impacts of climate change as the warming climate happens. You've got glaciers, major glaciers in Greenland and Antarctica that are that are melting and raising sea levels. Uh, if you're an island nation, you don't really have anywhere you can retreat inland to get above uh, uh, the rising seas and tidal surges and storms. Uh, I, I know that there are storms that pass through you know that part of the world. I was in a really bad storm in the South China Sea on board an aircraft carrier, and it was a heck of an experience. Uh, so, uh, wh- what is the government? What are the people c- concerned about with regards to climate change in Singapore? No, that's a really uh, great uh, point that you brought up. Yeah, I think it's it's existential. It's an existential threat to Singapore. As you pointed out, we're a small island nation. There's nowhere to kind of really flee to higher ground. Um, and we're very concerned about rising sea levels as well. Um, you know, uh, a very large part of our geographical space is actually um, less than one meter above sea level. So there, there's small things we can do to, you know, set up walls around um, the perimeter of Singapore, for instance, but that's really tinkering around the edges. So I think we recognize that Singapore has to do its part um, in the global struggle against climate change, um, or whether it's you know facilitating negotiations at COP um, uh, or uh, coming up with uh, uh, new technologies like hydrogen, clean energy technologies um, that you know have the potential to reduce carbon emissions or um, Leveraging on our strengths as a financial hub, I think we have a lot to contribute in the climate finance space, really leveraging the power of the private sector to funnel investments into these kinds of technologies that that support climate mitigation and adaptation. Um, so it's a, it's a really multi-pronged uh, approach. You know, Singapore released uh, a Green Plan 2030 as well uh, that lays out our strategy for it. And uh, we ourselves have made a commitment to achieve net zero emissions um, by 2050. So... Uh, it's, it's a multi-pronged effort, I would say. Yeah, that's good. 
unfortunately, JJ, we're, we're right up coming up against the end of the show here. You mentioned uh, resources that our listeners could maybe tap into to learn more, more about Singapore. What what might those be? Yeah, for sure. Um, well, I encourage the listeners to follow the embassy social media pages. You know, on Twitter, that's Singapore EMBDC. Same for Instagram as well for more lighthearted content. Um, that's Singapore EMBDC. On Facebook, that's Singapore Embassy DC. Uh, for more official statements, you can follow the press room of our Prime Minister Lee Hsien Long, Deputy Prime Minister Lawrence Wong, and Foreign Minister Dr. Vivian Balakrishnan. I think that really articulates our policy positions about Singapore's role in the world and our national security very, very well. From the academic perspective, I recommend the IC's Yusof Ishak Institute that does great research on Singapore and Southeast Asia. That's at iseas.edu.sg. You know, for the wealthy, please invest in Singapore. <laughs> <laughs> Go to the website of the Economic Development Board. That's edb.gov.sg. And last but not least, for the casual listener, you know, I recommend the Visit Singapore website, Anbar Tourism Board, to learn all about the fun things you can do in Singapore. That's at visitsingapore.com. It, it is a fantastic place to visit. I can absolutely attest. Uh, JJ Pong, thank you so much for joining us today from the Embassy of Singapore in Washington, D.C. This has been a great discussion. Thank you so much for letting me be here today to talk about Singapore and our strong relationship with the United States. It was a real pleasure. All right. And that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week. Have a great finish to your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns with host John Olson. It's brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check their website, cybersecuritysummit.org, for a listing of their upcoming webinar series.